1209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As Eric was just mentioning, one week from today, Country Springs Hotel, Insight 2018. It is going to be a lot of fun. Hope to see you there. You can go to WTMJ.com and just click on the Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. Tickets are 25 bucks a piece. Um, going to be a lot of people there. And it's going to be, well, first of all, a, a chance to see some of these people, these newsmakers you hear or see on TV in an intimate sort of setting. We're also going to have a lot of fun, kind of give you the inside thing, and we'll see how you how a radio show and all that is put together. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hope to see a lot of people out there. It is one week from tonight. Let's start off, as we always do, three big things. All right, story number one, breaking news this morning. The man who terrorized Austin, Texas, over the course of the last several weeks, has now, well, been identified. He is dead good. That's, let's just start off with that. Let, let me back up just a little bit. I was talking a little bit about this, this yesterday. I, I remember back in 1984, and I understand for some of you, it's uh, 1984, but in 1984, there was a period of time when for about three or four weeks, the Midwest including Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and other areas, in addition to Minnesota and Iowa, was being terrorized by a a serial pipe bomber. And the guy's name was, I think, Stephen Earl Carr. And and what he was doing is he would, again, make pipe bombs, which are just nasty things, nasty things. And I I won't go into how you make them, but, but back then, you had to have some special sort of knowledge or, you know, go to one of these bookstores and buy something like the Anarchist Cookbook, which told you how to manufacture pipe bombs. Now, unfortunately, all you have to do is go on the Internet. And within, you know, 10 minutes, you can figure out how to take ordinary, ordinary things and turn them into a weapon of destruction. But this guy traveled all around the Midwest, particularly Iowa, Minnesota, and, and Wisconsin, and he planted pipe bombs. Um, and what happened was... For example, as I recall, there was one that was planted in a park in Milwaukee, and the guy attached a like a dollar bill or a $5 bill to a string, and that was attached to the pipe bomb, and somebody found it, pulled on the dollar bill to pick it up, set off the bomb. I mean, what, what sort of horrible, evil person does that? He ultimately was caught because he was in a rented car in Mason City, Iowa, trying to make another bomb. And these things are very, very volatile. And like like I said yesterday, what happens a lot of times is you catch the bomber because they blow themselves up. They're they're fooling around with the ingredients. It's very, very volatile. Boom. And that's what happened with this character in Mason City, Iowa. He ended up not killing himself, though, was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Haven't been able to figure out ultimately what happened to him um, after he completed his sentence and where he is today, but um, th- that was that that circumstance. So you you had that occur. Um, you know, we've also, if you remember, a number of years ago, I was telling this story as well. I had a very my, my very closest friend, my my best friend and his wife. Um, they lived in the Washington D.C. area, and they lived. If you remember, a number of years ago, there was the whole D.C. sniper thing, where you had the the father and son, I believe, that were indiscriminately shooting people and just terrorize they they would you know they were shooting people for no rhyme or reason somebody would be filling gas at a gasoline station and the sniper would would shoot them i mean that community was terrorized for the better part of you know three weeks because you're thinking my god you know if i'm out there filling my car with gasoline i could be shot i mean can you imagine you know let your kids go play baseball or do whatever 
horrible, horrible situation. So when you have these lunatics that do this, it really, it, it just can terrorize and completely paralyze a community. And I have no doubt that that was going on in Austin, Texas over the course of the last few weeks. Well, the story today is that they, they caught the guy. The authorities, and this is the FBI and local police and state authorities, had been zeroing in on him, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And apparently um, they, they, they were able to track down the, the rental car that he had. They were closing in on him as he sat in the rental car by the hotel where he was staying, and um, he either the bomb went off or he intentionally killed himself. Don't know, but, but he's, he's dead. They are trying to investigate now to determine whether or not the guy had accomplices or not. Um, don't know. I guess, you know, that's still out there. The bigger concern, though, is whether or not he left any more of these bombs around the area, um, you know, waiting for them to explode. Well, here's here's to me the, the larger point of, of all this. Over well, the last actually couple years, it's been very easy to criticize law enforcement in general and the FBI in particular. And don't get me wrong, the FBI has done a number of things which, as a former federal prosecutor, I find myself scratching my, my head on. I mean, just the the involvement in the political machinations during the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump presidential race is just absolutely kind of beyond me. James Comey's various statements, the fact that you had FBI agents who were apparently um, using the power of their office to try to, I don't know, steer the course of the election. And I believe that is, in fact, you know what happened. I believe there were strategic leaks that were being made and political decisions. And, and the FBI, um, rightly, I think, is getting criticized for that. And I will tell you, I know a lot of friends of mine who are former FBI agents who just shake their heads and go, I, I can't believe that this this has happened. So it's fair to criticize, but it's also, I think, fair to give credit where credit is due. This investigation leading to the identification of this 23, 24-year-old psycho in, in Austin, Texas, is textbook example of what law, the very, very best of law enforcement. Here's the problem when it comes to these improvised devices. Unfortunately, they are very easy to make, and they can be made by somebody who has a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of will. They can be made and assembled, generally speaking, by um, items that you can purchase anywhere. I mean, you, you can go, and again, without going into details, you can go into a hardware store, and you can buy the ingredients that you really need to make a, a pipe bomb. You know, if, if again, if you've got the will and a little bit of, of the knowledge. And these things are nasty. I mean, the you know, you, you've got gunpowder. You've got, like, nails and uh, screws and pieces of metal that are going to explode. It's 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 those types of things. You can do them with – you can use batteries and all these different things. But it, but it's easy it's easy to make those like I say if you know what you are doing and the, the it's not like you need to go buy plutonium 
You know, you can do this with commonly available things. So that's part of the problem that law enforcement has when you see these. It's like, all right, well, you could walk into any hardware store anywhere or any Home Depot store or whatever, and you could find the makings of this. Well, this was an amazingly thorough investigation. And what they apparently were able to determine is that there were certain common items certain items that were being used in every one of these explosive devices. In particular, the type of battery that this psychopath was using, it wasn't the average type of Duracell battery that you could find, again, in any sort of hardware store. It was a specialized type of battery. And they started seeing, okay, this is the modus operandi of this bomber, so let's go start this major search and let's try to find out all right, you know, who's buying this particular type of battery? And through Internet searches and all, they were able to identify somebody who was doing this. They had the photographs from the person who dropped off the bomb at the Federal Express Center, and apparently it was this character, and he was wearing a blonde wig and a baseball hat. But they were able to start to put this all together, again, saying, all right, we've got certain common elements here. And ultimately, they were able to identify the bomber, and they were closing in when he set off the bomb and presumably killed himself. So I don't know that there is a larger point here other than to say that for every time we criticize law enforcement, and again, particularly the FBI's had had a rough go of it lately, and a lot of the FBI wounds are self-inflicted. You look at this investigation, the work of law enforcement, putting this together, able to identify who it was, and then ultimately able to be about to apprehend him before he killed himself, that that is a credit to law enforcement. And the reality is people in Austin, Texas, and that whole area are, are going to be a lot safer tonight because of the work of law enforcement. So whenever we decide we're going to rag on law enforcement about this or that or the other thing, that might be fair. But just let's remember some of the successes as well. And there is no question that what happened yesterday, the identification of this bomber, closing in, causing him to kill himself and send him off to, you know, whatever special hell that he is going to be in, it, it it's it's a tribute to the law enforcement and the good work. I guess more stories are going to come out. I really don't have anything more to add about the, this guy, 23, 24 years old, um, apparently no criminal record, uh, homeschooled, high school, GED, going to a community college in the area, apparently working, um, you know, in, as a shipping clerk or something like that and receiving or something like that. You know, they're talking to the neighbors and all the neighbors are saying what you typically hear in these things. Well, we would have never guessed that this guy was going to be a serial bomber. We, we have no idea. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more that comes out about him and maybe his motivation. Truth is, we might never know. But the bottom line, it is a lot safer today because of the act of law enforcement. And they deserve a lot of credit for that. When we come back, big story number two, a school shooting in Maryland is partially thwarted because of an armed security officer. What is the lesson we should take from that? Stick around. It's 1220. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1222, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, almost a week away from opening day in San Diego. That's right. Um, Brewers opening day is a week from tomorrow. Um, and the Brewers still have a handful of roster moves to make. Greg Matzik goes live to Arizona to get the latest from radio voice Jeff Levering. That's at 6.15 tonight on Sports Central. Gru, I don't know how much you follow it, but the I think a lot of us still believe the Brewers need one more pitcher. And uh, the last 
big-name free agent pitcher on the market was Alex Cobb, who used to pitch for the Cubs. And um, the Brewers and the Orioles were the two teams that were thinking of going after him. Orioles apparently signed the guy who has a sort of sketchy history on health to a four-year, $60 million deal. Um, let, me, let me put it like that. Well, I believe the Brewers need a fifth starting pitcher. Paying Alex Cobb four years, $60 million, um, that would have been... Okay, if people think that Jeff Supan or um, Matt Garza were mistakes, that, that would have been... That type of money for that length of time for Alex Cobb, I think, would have been a Matt Garza-type mistake, just saying. All right, big story number two. Over the last couple weeks, there's been this ongoing debate after the shooting of Parkland about, you know, the role of firearms and the role of violence in schools. And we, we all agree that you want schools to be safe places. The problem is having an honest conversation about how you do that. And for everybody who says, all right, I want to ban the AR-15 rifle, my question is always, okay, let's live in the real world. There are 8 million of these. Even if, forget the Second Amendment, even if you could go around and ban this type of firearm, there are 8 million of them in private hands. Does that mean you're now going to confiscate the guns? How are you going to get those guns out of private hands? And if you get those guns out of private hands, what are then you going to do about the semi-automatic handguns, you know, for the people who can, you know, go in and you have three or four magazines and you can shoot eight or nine rounds, you know, as fast as you can pull the trigger and reload quickly. All right, if we we get rid of the AR-15 semi-automatic rifles and then we, you know, are we going to get rid of handguns, where do you draw the line? And, again, if we were writing... If we were back in, you know, the, the 1700s and we were trying to say, all right, how should we have starting point? How do you handle firearms? Maybe you have a different discussion, but we're not. We're in 2018. So there, there's been a lot of conversation about this, including um, bans of different types of guns that I just don't think are practical. I mean, I just don't think it makes stuff safer. There's been talk of arming teachers. Some people think that's a good idea. Other people say, oh, this is just terrible. I don't want my, you know, 65-year-old, you know, Latin teacher hauling around a gun. Well, okay, I, I think a lot of people would say, well, she probably wouldn't be the one that would apply for that. But yesterday you had a very, very interesting situation, or Tuesday. This is actually what happened. Yeah, Tuesday. Deputy Blaine Gaskill, he was the school resource officer In the Maryland High School, here's the way the Washington Post reports this. Deputy Blaine Gaskell rushed towards the sound of gunshots in a Maryland high school Tuesday, putting himself not only in the line of fire, but also at the center of a white-hot national debate on school safety. So what happened is Gaskell, he's a 34-year-old SWAT-trained officer of the St. Mary's County Sheriff's Office, was also working as a school resource officer when a student opened fire in a first-floor hallway, striking a female student and possibly a male classmate. Gaskell, that's the cop, confronted the shooter as teachers and students scrambled for cover. Both fired weapons, and the gunman was fatally wounded. Gaskell was not injured. They don't know, or at least it hasn't been reported yet, or I haven't seen it, whether or not it was the officer that fired the fatal shot or whether it was the shooter that ended up killing himself. But the shooter was confronted by an armed, trained police officer. 
Um, again, investigators still reviewing video, taking testimony to determine exactly what happened in the exchange that sent stu- two students, 16-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy, to the hospital with injuries. Couldn't say who shot the boy or whether the attacker was killed by Gaskell or shot himself. But, but there's no question, I, I think, that the rapid response by this security officer short-circuited the attack. Now, who knows what the shooter would have done if the armed officer didn't show up? You know, we, we don't know. So we're playing a game of what if. You know, maybe, maybe the kid's intention was to, you know, fire at the girl, fire at the boy, kill himself. Don't know. Maybe his intention was to start shooting other people. Don't know. But what we know is the presence of a trained police officer and the fact that there was this exchange of gunfire, we know that it ended this horrible situation before it could have been even worse. Right? I want to open up our phone lines. Our numbers are 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, unlike what happened in Parkland when the the officer, the, the sheriff's deputy, instead of rushing in and confronting the gunman for whatever reasons, and he's been fired and people have labeled him a coward, and he says, no, he was just following procedures, whatever. But unlike in Parkland, where the, the armed officer stayed outside and didn't confront the gunman, in this case, you had the armed officer that confronted the gunman, and I think Again, it is reasonable to assume short-circuited um, a potential massacre, which brings me to my point, 414-799-1620. Based on what happened yesterday, don't you feel better knowing that some of these schools have armed officers in them who are prepared to confront shooters? To me, you can argue about all sorts of other stuff. You know, how, how do we solve violence and these type of things? But this, to me, is direct evidence that an armed, trained police officer willing to confront a shooter is one of, if not the best ways to prevent future school massacres. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 1229. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we're going to break for the news. I want to make sure we have time to talk about this topic in, in detail. But I don't think there's any, I don't think you can argue that schools are safer. This school shooting yesterday could have been a lot worse were it not for an armed, armed, trained security officer who was willing to confront the shooter. Isn't that an argument for having armed, trained security officers in schools? 1237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Giannis and company are hoping a trip back home can stem the tide of what has been a tough second half of the season. Ted Davis and Dennis Krause are on the call as the Bucks welcome the Clippers to town tonight at 640. Let's start with Charlie in Milwaukee. Charlie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Sure. My, my biggest thing about this, as much as I thought the original idea of training people and letting them pack in schools, I thought I thought it was really not a good idea, but you know the more it comes down to it, and especially the the um, episode yesterday or two days ago, re- reiterates that Trump, whether you like him or not, whether you follow the mainstream media's 
um, you know, narrative or not, Trump is usually right. And he's right about arming someone in schools and getting them to honestly stop these things. And it's going to nip things in the butt. You got to give them credit for saying something that sounds, you know, wrong, but he's probably right. And it's, you got to give them credit. And it goes against the mainstream media's um, narrative. Well, it does. But it'd be, and let's, let's bring it closer to home. You know, you, you have at Governor Walker's urging, you have the, the state legislature, which has essentially come to, they've, they've come together to pass a $100 million school safety plan. And you've got some of the people on the left and some of the Democrats are screaming, oh, this, this is terrible because it doesn't involve gun control or not enough of our gun control. And, and the question, of course, is, all right, what, what exactly are, are you proposing? I mean, are you, going, are you going to advocate confiscation of firearms? Are you going to advocate increased background checks, none of which would have made any difference in these different types of school shootings, or do you want to do something which apparently actually might work, which is taking you know money and allowing it for purposes of schools, making security improvements to school buildings, training staff, and putting police officers in schools? And I don't think there is any way you can argue that this shooting in Maryland yesterday would have been a lot worse if it were not for the fact that within a minute you had a trained law enforcement officer who was in a position to confront the shooter. Now, how much worse would it have been? I don't know. Don't don't know. We can speculate about that all we want. But the same thing is true in Parkland. You know, you have this deputy. You saw the opposite. You have a deputy who, rather than confronting the shooter, and I understand there's some people who say, well, that wouldn't have been very smart. He was he would have been outgunned. Well, at least he was armed. He was armed. The students that were being shot were not. But, you know, this is the type of real-world sort of stuff. And, again, whether you think teachers should be armed or not, that, that's a whole different question. But taking money and putting it into these schools to put more trained police officers in those schools, I think, is a very, very good thing. Let's talk to uh, Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, hi. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Hey, my thought, my thoughts are: uh, if there's a left liberal uh, that wants to confront a armed nut without a gun and try to talk him out of it, uh, I'd like to see how many of them volunteer for that. I'm all for having teachers trained and uh, being with concealed carry, care whatever, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, protect students and themselves. Yeah, if the if the teachers are are willing to do it. I mean, thanks for the call, Mike. I guess. I, here's here's where I start. Um, I, I start with the notion that I don't think it is a good idea to put that burden on average citizens. So while I would not oppose teachers being able to be armed, I think it makes much more sense to encourage trained law enforcement people to be in the school as the school resource officers um, so they are in a position to respond because teachers are trained to teach all right law enforcement people are trained to enforce the laws and to confront these types of situations so as a starting point I mean I think this is this is where it begins and candidly you look at like I say you look at what happened yesterday and to me that that's 
clear evidence. Now, is this always going, is, is this the silver bullet that stops gun violence or, or in schools? Well, no, it's not. I mean, look, I, I, I went to Nicolay High School in Glendale. Nicolay High School in Glendale is a sprawling sort of campus. In this particular situation, the SWAT-trained resource officer was able to confront the shooter in a minute. All right, I'm trying to picture if I'm at Nicolay High School and you've got um, the, the police officer that's in one far end of the building and the shooter that's in the other end of the building, well, you're not going to be able to get there in, in a minute. So maybe it's going to be two, three, four minutes or whatever. So things could be worse. I also understand, and some people are sending me texts, you know, what, what happened here, you know, who had what. Both of the people had handguns. Right, so I understand that maybe there's the thinking, well, if he had confronted him and the kid had an AR-15, maybe the result would have been different. Maybe, maybe. You, you, you don't know. But, of course, law enforcement officers are trained to deal with those types of situations a- as well. But I guess I look at what happened yesterday as pretty clear evidence that if you want to start trying to figure out real-world ways that we might be able to reduce the carnage, this is this is a good start until somebody can come up to explain to me if the idea is, well, we want to ban AR-15s or whatever or similar type of firearms. All right. Tell me how you're going to get them out of people's hands. All right. Then 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 we'll move on. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Kurt in Fond du Lac. Kurt, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I feel like we're on the same page. I think two words you use that make no sense are armed and trained. The resource officer went to the police academy. He's been trained to handle high-pressure situations like that. But most importantly, he spent a lot of time in the range refining yeah. his talent. The, you know, not, the idea of disarming a teacher that passes some training without the type of intensive training these police officers do is just plain nonsense. And uh, frankly, you're asking for unintended consequences like a shot going somewhere other than they intended it to. I'm been trained, yeah, teachers, no, that's just foolish. Well, I guess, and, and again, that that's for, for the purpose here, that's I think this is where this is where it it should start. You know, a lot of schools matter of fact, I, I think having police in schools is a good idea for a wide variety of, of reasons. Now I understand part of the problem is that there is an expense to this. Um that's one of the things that this, for example, in Wisconsin, Governor Walker's bill helps underwrite, you know, the cost of this so you can afford to do this. But like I said, I think there's all sorts of values that come in this. But if we want to get serious about school shooting, isn't this a good way to start? I mean, shouldn't we all be able to come together? And I understand people are going to have disagreements about, well, you know, do do we need tighter background checks and things like that, which... I don't think would have stopped any of the recent, you know, uh, series of school shootings. You know, do we need to have a, a limit on the size of the magazine? Well, okay, so then the kid shows up, and instead of like the large magazines, he's got smaller magazines that he changes out. I, I don't know that any of that stuff makes a difference in the big picture. But having an armed, trained security. Um, police officer, a school resource officer who's in a position to confront him, that, I think, does have a meaningful, meaningful difference. All right, let's talk to George in Pewaukee. George, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I think the result would have been much different, and I don't know how much time the resource officer had to respond if he heard shots and then responded. He was there in about a minute, is what I, I stood. But what it was that triggered it, I'm not positive. But he was there in about oh, a minute. So he got there in about a minute. Yes. So what, would have, what, what I think would have really changed the situation a lot 
if that kid had an AR-15, there would have been 30 to 50 bullets fired before that resource officer would have gotten near him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's, it, I, it's a combination of security as well as removing those weapons. And I don't have the answer of how you get them okay. out of society, but as long as those weapons are readily available, they're still being manufactured. Start with, stop the stop the production of them. Okay. Start somewhere, and maybe twenty years down the road, that, that that'll that'll benefit. Does the fact that okay, let, let's let's take my number that, that there's eight million that are out in private hands. Yeah. Um, does the fact that of that eight million. The number of these firearms, this type of firearm that's used in in one of these shootings, maybe maybe it's the last, maybe it's five or six people out of that eight million. In your mind, is that a justification because you got five or six people that act out in a psychotic fashion with that firearm? Is that a basis for banning the firearm, um, the manufacturer of that type of firearm? I would ban the fire, I, and I, I know you own guns. I own guns myself. I have a handgun. I don't have an AR-15. I, I own got, a handgun, I've yeah. I've got five or six different high-powered, high-powered rifles that hold four or five bullets, so I know how guns work. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ban that gun. You can't produce them anymore and begin somehow. I don't, I don't have the answer of how you get them okay. out of the hands of people, but... Um, what was my point? My point is I would ban them because there's no sense to have them in society. Give me a well-thought-out reason why those guns have to be used by an everyday citizen. Okay. Well, thanks for the appreciate I don't want to turn this into too much into a lengthy debate about um, you know, AR-15s. In this particular case, that the kid didn't have an AR-15. The kid had a handgun, and he was using the handgun to shoot people. Um, he was confronted by a, a trained law enforcement officer who was armed with a handgun himself, so the officer wasn't outgunned. But, I mean, th- th- there is no question, because that officer was there and because you had the exchange of gunfire, and again, we don't know yet whether the kid shot himself or whether he was killed by the officer. I, I don't know. They haven't said that yet. But there's no question that what could have been a lot worse was stopped in the bud by the presence of the trained security guy. So maybe we can di- maybe we disagree on on how you get AR15s out of society if you need to do it. Okay, that's fine. Maybe we can disagree about whether or not teachers should be armed as a first line of defense. All right, that's fine. Can't we all agree that maybe as a starting point it is taking some money and helping put armed trained police officers in the schools to deal with situations like this. Just saying. 1248 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1252 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. She was a Milwaukee County Sheriff's Deputy until she saw on the draw, what she saw on the draw job drove her to an early retirement. Hear what she's doing now to help those in law enforcement when she joins John and Melissa 434 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Be sure to check that out. Coming up in just a couple minutes, um, Facebook in the news and not in a good way. And then immediately after that, some landowners in Mount Pleasant, well, they're taking on Foxconn. They're taking on the local community. Is it possible to be right and really wrong at the same time? I'll tell you that story in just a minute. Um, before that, though, I, I, I want to comment on the state Supreme Court race. Uh, two weeks from yesterday, 
there is an election. Everybody in the state gets to go and vote on the state Supreme Court justice. Mike Gableman, who is the conservative, a conservative, is retiring after one 10-year term. You've got two candidates who are running. One is Mike Skranek. He is a Sauk County Circuit judge. He's been running ads on the station. I've heard him today. He's going to be joining me at Insight a week from tonight. Um, he is the conservative candidate. By conservative, we're talking about a guy who believes in separation of powers and says, hey, I'm, I'm going to follow the law and I'm going to apply the law. His opponent is this, she's turned into a whacked out lefty named Rebecca Dallet. She is a Milwaukee County Circuit Judge and uh, there's never been any secret that, you know, that she's been a liberal. But what's happened is during the primary, she was forced to the left. There was a third guy running during the primary. His name was Tim Burns, and he was this ultimate Madison lefty. Well, I think Dallet became concerned that she was going to maybe lose in the primary, so she decided to abandon sort of any sense of, well, judicial pretense and start, again, taking issues on taking sides on political issues. You know, she's denounced Act 10. She's come out as being extremely anti-firearm. She was apparently, um, our friends up the dial were reporting that there's, she was apparently raising money in San Francisco, and she used the phrase, she wants to take, uh, she wants to take San Francisco values to Wisconsin or something like that. Wow. I mean, that's just what we need in the state of Wisconsin, a Supreme Court candidate who wants Wisconsin to be more like San Francisco. Well, maybe this plays really, really well in Dane County, but I don't think it's going to play well in a big chunk of the state. I mean, PolitiFact is even out uh, today talking about how, yeah, I mean, she's running and using, you know, this position as Supreme Court, talking about how she's going to advance various political positions that she has. This is really, really scary. I mean, if this lady wants to get involved in promoting particular type of policies and all, go with God. That's great. But what she should be doing is running for governor against Scott Walker or running for state Senate. If she thinks she's to the left of Tammy Baldwin, she should be running for the U.S. Senate. She should not be running for the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court is to pick people who can enforce the law and follow the law, not look at the law through whatever prism they might want to have and say, gee, this is what I think it should be. I I, I don't like Act 10. Forget the fact that, okay, the, the duly elected representatives of people voted for Act 10. I don't like Act 10, so I'm going to try to find a way to strike that down. Or I don't like voter ID, um, so I'm going to try to fight, find a way to strike that down. That is scary, and it is what the choice is that all Wisconsin voters have when that election rolls around in, in two weeks. And... I mean, right now there's five conservatives on the state Supreme Court. There is two. There are two liberals. The way Wisconsin looks today, with all the successes we are having economically, with all the positive stuff that's been coming out of Madison, it would look markedly different and not for the better had Rebecca Dallet and one other person who views the legal system like she views it been on the Supreme Court. Because then I guarantee you what would have happened is the efforts that you saw from a handful of Dane County Circuit judges and their warped and whacked out interpretation of laws. 
if that would have been able to be the way the Supreme Court approached stuff, well, I tell you, Wisconsin would not be enjoying the economic renaissance that it is today. And that's just kind of the reality that's out there. So, you know, whether you're a person who believes in issues like the Second Amendment uh, and more importantly, if you're somebody who believes in the rule of law, the truth is you need to get out and you need to vote. And you need to vote for Mike Skrennick. Like I say, he's going to be joining me at Insight a week from today. And I think one of the most interesting questions is going to be, all right, San Francisco values. Is Wisconsin really about San Francisco values? Or are we about Wisconsin values, which might say, hey, you look at San Francisco, and it's pretty much a classic example of between policies and between interpretations of the law, it's pretty much of a disaster. Do we really want that for Wisconsin? And that's the question that people are going to have when they get out and they go to the polls. I understand liberals think that this is the big chance to grab a state Supreme Court race seat because, all right, Republicans and conservatives are disenchanted. You know, people are upset about Donald Trump. We've got this enthusiasm factor. You know, we're going to get the liberals to turn out and the Republicans and the conservatives are going to stay home. Hope that is not the case, and we'll be talking about a lot, a lot about this over the course of the next two weeks. But this is an important election. Everybody gets to vote in it, and that's why everybody, especially if you care about the rule of law, you need to be out and you need to vote two weeks from yesterday. It's twelve fifty nine. This is Jeff Wagner. One ten, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, are, are you are you into Facebook? I mean, are you one of these these guys that spend a lot of time on Facebook? I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, but I do check it I don't know, fairly consistently, maybe once a day. It, see, I, I am. This will surprise nobody, but I'm I'm, I'm really not. Okay. Um, but but my my eyes have been opened to the world of Facebook um, through my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, now she's not one of these people who is an obsessive Facebook user, but. She has, and I'd say maybe once or twice a day, you know, she will go on to Facebook because between, she, Fran knows everybody, between friends, <laughs> and she does, I mean, she, she just does, between friends and family and stuff um, scattered out all over the country. It, it's a way to check what's going on with your friends oh, and your kids yeah. and, you know, and people posting stuff. And, you know, she doesn't follow the political stuff. You know, that's not what she's watching. But it's like, okay, if a friend of hers is in Arizona or something and posts stuff, that that's what she uses mm-hmm. to follow. Mm-hmm. I am amazed at... How quickly people respond. For example, a couple of weeks ago, we're we're in Key West, and so you know, we, she takes a couple pictures of us. Okay, this is us here. We you know, well, let's post a picture here. We're at Mallory Square watching the sunset, or mm-hmm. you know, we're you know, we're we're wherever you know, we're at Sloppy Joe's or, or whatever, or we're on like the Sunset Cruise. She posts it, and I am amazed because within like a half hour, you get three hundred responses. Now, that part of it's because. You know, everybody knows her and everybody loves her, which is great. But it's also I'm, I'm always amazed that there's all these people who must be like constantly oh, yeah. following Facebook because it's this it's this immediate thing. You post something and then within a minute or two, all these people, all cute couple or, you know, mm-hmm. look, I wish we were there or whatever. It, it's it, it's so it's a big part of a lot of people's lives. Oh, my God. And many people who don't even post things still spend a lot of time on there where they just 
mindlessly scroll through and just mm-hmm. look and maybe sometimes there's an article posted hey look at this i didn't know about that or hey look at that hey look these guys grandkids whatever it might be right that happens all the time people just i i think it'd be embarrassing to learn how much time many of us spend on Facebook. yeah it, it, it's just, I, i'm just always amazed at the immediate response to stuff but i mean yeah. again i i do i mean i understand why you you want to you know, you you want to keep up with your friends or whatever, and there's and there's a lot of clutter that's on there. But yeah, that, I'll, I'll <laughs> what use are you that. talking about? Come well, there's, on. A, there's a lot of clutter, but yes, at the yes, same yes. time, I mean, I I understand you want to check in. Oh, this is you know, this is my friend so and so. That's their kids, you yeah. know, and they they live in Michigan. And look, they posted this thing. So I mean, it's so I I get I get what the appeal is, and I also. While I have a lot of addictions, that that isn't going to be one of them. But I also understand the addictive nature of it. My guess is that you know the more time you spend, the more time you want to spend on this, and the more of a footprint you leave behind for others to enjoy. Which is why we love Eric Bilstead here because that comment leads into big story number three: the Facebook crisis. Now, you, you might, I'm going to try to simplify this. And again, I, I understand that maybe there's some techies out there. Don't, don't email me and say, oh, you're just, you're, you're oversimplifying it. Here's, here is essentially what the crisis facing Facebook is right now. And Facebook has, has lost a ton of losers, uh, users over the last couple of days. And the price of the stock ha- has dropped dramatically. It's one of the reasons why the stock market was way off the first two, um, um, on on Monday and and actually on on last Friday as well. Let, let me make this really simple. If you go onto Facebook, you can go onto somebody's Facebook page, and you can indicate that you you like it. So let's say that um, oh I don't know. Let's say Robin Yount. We got the baseball season coming up. Robin Yount has a Facebook page. This is all theoretical. I don't know if Robin does that or not. But you know, you go on to Robin Yount's Facebook page, and um, you know, uh, you you hit that that thumbs up button on the Robin Yount page, saying, "Hey, I I, I like what's what's here," and you know, maybe maybe you maybe you did it because you wanted to see. You know, the posts that Robin Yount was going to make in your news feed. Maybe you did it because, you know, you, you just, I like this. This is great. Now, when a lot of people do that, and maybe you realize that marketers can then target advertisements to you based on your interest in Robin Yount. That, that's kind of the, that's sort of the way this works. But that's the exchange, okay? Um, there are a couple research places that have developed these modeling studies. It's actually researchers at Stanford University and the Psychometric Center at the University of Cambridge. What they believe is, by looking at your likes, the different things that you like, you like Robin Yount, you like, um, you've liked the Aaron Rodgers Facebook page, you've liked the Toby Keith Facebook page, they believe that by looking at the number and the different things that you like on Facebook, they can develop a personality profile of you, right? So that um, they can tell, you know, what concerts you might be interested in going to, what sports you follow, and they believe they can carry this far enough so that they might even be able to know, for example, your political preferences. Just just saying, not passing judgment on whether or not that's accurate enough, but these researchers believe, you know, if we have enough likes that people have, we can 
uh, again, create a profile on this. So um, what happened is you've got this information that is out there. So there's a a couple academics who go to Facebook and say, hey, we want to study this, and we want access to this data. Now, in some cases, you know, people may have given permission for their data to be used. But in many cases, you know, they haven't. You know, you you haven't given permission to um, an outside source to know that, you know, you like Toby Keith and you like, um, you know, Robin Yount. That's information that you understand. You're saying that you like it um, for the purposes of Robin Yount. And the Robin Yount Facebook page might change it, but you didn't necessarily know that that's going to be shocked around. Well, what happened is there's one of these researchers out there who goes to Facebook and says, hey, I want access to this information. We're going to do these studies. I I want access to all this information. I want to know everybody who clicked on. I want to know who it was that clicked on the Robin Yount page and who it was that clicked on the Aaron Rodgers page and who it was that clicked on the Toby Keith page. And Facebook lets this researcher have access to all this information. I mean, you know, an incredible amount of information. And so what the researchers then do is they take this and they start to build profiles of people based on all their likes. And then they sell this information to third parties. And again, that's where the, the belief is that people could be targeted for their political views. Hey, okay, the Trump campaign knows here we've now got Gru who likes Toby Keith, he likes Robin Yount, he likes um, the NRA, he likes um, Aaron Rodgers. Hey, we think this guy is most likely to be a Trump voter, so what we're going to do is we're going to reach out and try to contact him. That, that's, that's sort of what they, they did. So all these people were part of this profile that was then being, again, sold to these third parties. And people who provided the information in the first place didn't know about it. Now, that's sort of an overly simplified way of trying to explain this. But the vast majority of people, apparently um, 270,000 users consented to allow their likes, etc., to be used for one of these profiling things. What happens is over 30 million Facebook accounts, though, were turned over. Now, Facebook says, well, this kind of violated some of our internal policies, and we're really, really sorry about this. Um, So actually, the profiles of over 50 million users were used without their permission by these groups. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. How big a deal is this? If you are a Facebook user, and I know you might be, I mean, do you feel that you are betrayed by this? Do you feel that Facebook has sold you out? Or is this just something that comes with the territory nowadays? I mean, I and the, what I say by that is I, I know when I go on Amazon, for example, and let's say I'm looking for stuff on Amazon, I know that that information is going to get used, and I fully 
recognize that I'm going to be targeted and then all of a sudden I'm going to be barraged with ads from whatever it was that I was looking for or similar sorts of things. So I understand that nothing's really secret in many respects and that these different preferences do get used um, in order to try to market things. So I know that that is going on. But my question is, the fact that Facebook allowed people to get this information, these researchers to get the information without your permission, and then that that information could have been used to turn into personality profiles to target you, do you feel betrayed by Facebook? Would this cause you to stop using Facebook moving forward? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, it's a little bit difficult for me because I'm not, I've got a Facebook account, but I'm not one of these people that hang out on Facebook a lot. But do you feel violated by what Facebook did? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 121. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 124, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's been interesting to me to, to watch this go out with, with Facebook. I'm looking at, there's a professor from Wharton School, which is the big business school at the University of Pennsylvania, saying this is a catastrophic moment for Facebook, and we believe this data breach is going to continue to be the source of great public interest and intense scrutiny going forward. Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I just... I don't think so. I mean, essentially what happened here is you had this huge data mining operation. Um, Facebook information was provided to some of these researchers, took this information, created profiles of people that were then sold to campaigns. So based on your different likes on Facebook, you could be targeted by the Trump campaign or the Obama campaign or the Tammy Baldwin campaign or the Ron Johnson campaign or, or whatever. You know, people who subscribe to and did this sort of thing based on their personality profile without your consent. I, I understand there is a privacy element to this, but as a practical matter, I think most people that end up going on Facebook in the real world, and that's what we're talking about, they're, they're going on Facebook because they want to check up on what their grandkids are doing, and they want to check up on you know what's been posted, and hey, you know my, my, my dear friend's off on a vacation in Florida, you know what's going on? I think that's what a lot of people use it for, or uh, again, you use Facebook for that interaction. And I think many, many people know in their heart of hearts that, gee, you know, Facebook is not really a private sort of thing. And when you post stuff on the Internet, that is going to be used for public purposes, perhaps. And it might be sold and it might be used for merchandising purposes because, again, so you get targeted by the Trump campaign or the Obama campaign or the Clinton campaign or whatever, and you get some of these solicitations or you get stuff directed at you, that doesn't mean that you have to take action. I guess, to me, this is something that I understand where academics might be upset about it. I understand where privacy advocates might be upset about it. I understand that you know some people might say, okay, is this potentially a violation of campaign finance laws taking this information and um, you know using it for this purpose? Maybe I'll let the election lawyers try to figure that out. But whether or not this is suddenly going to cause an enormous number, okay, 50 million people were data mined, do I think that 
you know, anywhere close to that are going to suddenly say, you know, we're not going to participate in Facebook. No, I, I don't. Because, again, I believe most people still like the Facebook model. They enjoy it. They use it for recreation. And they're still going to find want to find out, you know, what their kids are doing on their vacation. Will this be the end of Facebook? I don't think so. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we have our winner of our pair of tickets to, to join me at Insight a week from today. Um, we'll have a couple more giveaways for the balance of this week. But, look, it's 25 bucks, and it's a lot of fun. Um, hope to see you there. You can go to WTMJ.com. You just see Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. Click on that. Follow the links, and uh, you'll be able to download your tickets. That's how it works. Hey, coming up between now and 3 o'clock, I also have a pair of tickets to uh, see William Shatner um, at the Paps Theater. That is this Saturday. We'll give those away again sometime between now and the end of the show. All right. People should be careful what they wish for. There's a really interesting story in the Journal Sentinel about the effort to acquire land for Foxconn. Now, Foxconn is going to happen. Um, it's They have the vast majority of the land that they need to, you know, to build a facility. Um, you know, they're trying to get 2,800 acres of land that they've got what they need. Um, what they have done is they have made a lot of purchases of, for example, vacant farmland. And for the larger open parcels down in the Foxconn area, they have been paying $50,000 an acre, which is a lot more than the property was worth a year or two ago. I mean, um, between 2011 and 2014, four different parcels of open land in the Fo- what I'm going to call the Foxconn zone down in Mount Pleasant sold for around between 4,300 to $8,000 an acre. All right, Foxconn, the people were paying 50, were paid $50,000 for this. So there was a huge markup and they have the land they need to make this happen. All right, there are a handful of property owners on the periphery of the Foxconn zone. Just a handful, and these are generally, these aren't these aren't the people that own, you know, 50 or 100 or 200 acres. These are like the, the single-family houses and things like that. Foxconn wants to acquire those, and some people don't want to sell. So the village is going about using the process of eminent domain. Eminent domain is that concept where the the government takes private property, pays you a fair market value, and then uses the, the property for the public good. Um, schools. You know, you need to build a school. There's no available land in a particular community, so you take somebody's property. You pay them what it's worth. That's eminent domain. You need to expand the road. So you've got a two-lane road that runs in front of people's houses. You need to expand it so you take a portion of their property to build the road. Very, very controversial Supreme Court case a number of years ago, which I, I think the Supreme Court got wrong, said that you could use eminent domain to take people's property for not if not just if it was blighted or not just because you needed it for the public purpose of building the road or the school, but rather if there was a larger economic value. So in other words, if you take an area of property and you tear it and you know people are living there 
but you could tear it down and build a giant shopping center or a factory that would generate more revenue for the community. That would be in the public good, so you can use eminent domain for that. There's a lot of us that have a problem with that, but that is, in fact, the law. In any event, um, Foxconn, you've got, again, people who largely along the perimeter own single-family houses. They've looked at some of the big landowners, the people that you know own a lot of the vacant property. Like I say, they were paid fifty thousand dollars an acre for property that was going for four or five thousand dollars an acre a couple years ago. So what's going on is Mount Pleasant is going to these homeowners who kind of live on the periphery, and there's there's a there's really a, a handful of them you know, left, maybe a dozen homeowners. And they're saying, look, we want your property and we want to use eminent domain for it. And what we'll do is we will give you 1.4 times the fair market value. So if your house is worth, if your house and land is worth 100000 we will give you $140,000. And these homeowners are, are screaming. They're saying, no, this is not an appropriate use of, of eminent domain. You shouldn't be able to do this. And then underwritten in this is also we're getting screwed over because, you know, the vacant, the farms that had the huge open property, they were getting four or five or ten times what the property was worth. You're only giving us 1.4 times our value. You should not do this. Now, the problem these homeowners have is I don't know that any of them really want to keep their houses. I mean, would you... As a general rule grew, I mean, if you owned a small house on the edge of the Foxconn zone where you're going to have 15,000 people, it's going to be turned into a factory. You know, you, you lived in this kind of like rural area, and now all of a sudden you live on the periphery of a factory with ten or 15,000 people and trucks and all that. Well, chances are you're not going to want to live there anyways. That's, that's it. So I think a lot of people think it's not that these people really want to stay anymore, given what's going to be happening to that property, but they want more money. You know, they don't think they're being treated fairly only by giving them 1.4 times what their property is worth. So there's a couple issues. Is this an appropriate one for eminent domain? And, you know, even if it is, should these people get more than 1.4 times the value of their property? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the Foxconn deal is going to be very, very good for the state. I will say this, though. On principle, I don't, I have trouble forcing these people to sell. I I just, I I do. They're on the edge of this property. Um, If they decide they want to keep their house under these circumstances, it's not like the Foxconn process can't, can't happen. It, it, it will. And as a matter of fact, it will. And so all of a sudden, these people are going to now live, you know, with their backyard turning out to be this like giant factory. So they might not want to do it. But I, under these circumstances, given that it's not going to kill the deal, if these folks don't want to take the money that's being offered, I think you should let them stay. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should Mount Pleasant force these final handful of owners who, like I say, again, they're on the perimeter of the zone. So this isn't going to stop the plant from being built. 
that plant is going to be built whether they sell or not. If they seriously don't want to sell and they seriously don't want to take 1.4 times the value of their home, I would say let them stay. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the government force these homeowners out? And my answer would be no. Now, again, the flip side of this is I'm not sure any of these homeowners really want to stay under the present circumstances. I just think they want more dough. 414-799-1620. But if they don't want 1.4 times the fair market value of their home, God bless them. Stay, but don't complain when those trucks are going by at 2 o'clock in the morning. What do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 145, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 148, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. See, the problem this handful of, of Foxconn holdouts have is they, they live they live on the perimeter of the Foxconn zone. So Foxconn's going to be built anyways. So their choices are either sell, take the eminent domain, and take the 1.4 times the value of, of the property, or stay. But again, they're they're gonna they're gonna be staying, and instead of having like farm fields or whatever, you know, they're they're gonna be on the perimeter of a giant factory, which I don't think anybody's going to want. Now, I understand these folks didn't ask for this, and maybe they would have preferred just to, you know, it been what it was. But that's not going to happen anymore. So, do I have an issue with eminent domain forcing them out? Yeah, I do. But at the same time, if this is all about just trying to get more money, be careful what you wish for. Um, let's see. Here's a text. Jeff, it's kind of like people you talk about who buy a home near the airport and then complain about the airport. Well, this is building a new airport and them not taking above market value for their home. Um, they probably really don't want to stay anyways. Um, let's see. The Meyer property in Oak Creek offered similar, and so did the um, 894 South and Greenfield. That amount is a fair value to offer. Um, Rich says, let them stay. Then when they want to sell later, good luck finding somebody who wants it. Well, that's always going to be, that's always going to be the issue that's there. Let's talk to Dennis in Portage. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? I am well, thank you. What's your take on this? Uh, My take on this is I know my brother-in-law who is in a situation of where they're going to lose their home. And at first, you know, it was put down as intimate domain but now they were just informed that they're going to be blighted. Right. So, right. That That's the term they have to use so they can use the eminent domain, right? It's it's blighted. And blighted, ha, blighted has this very, very broad meaning, which is why, candidly, Dennis, I'm not positive if they want to fight it. They might have a case, uh, maybe. I, I don't, I'm not a real estate lawyer and I don't play one on the radio, but it, it's it's not as open and shut a case, I think, as some, as some other things might have been. Right, because they, they've had their house assessed, but they haven't been told what it's going to be worth. And it just seems like this situation, I think, the way I understand it, is the county is buying up this land from these people, and then they're going to turn around and sell it to Foxconn? Yes. Um, so it just seems like they're going to get lowballed on this, you know, that these people are not going to be treated fairly. Um, well, I guess what what's what is tre- I mean, I guess what what is treated fairly? I guess under the under the circumstances, okay, the Foxconn the Foxconn plant is going to be built. All right, so yeah. it is changing the character of the community. It's like the texter who says, "Hey, all of a sudden they're building a new airport, and your backyard is gone." Um, they're offering if they do offer one point four times the fair market value. Um, is that is that unfair? 
Well, I don't know, but the situation is now, okay, say they, they made an offer, and then they have to find a home somewhere yep. like 12 miles away. Now the rate of everybody else's home is going up, mm-hmm. you know, exponentially. So, so, you know, the prices are really going sky, where they're only going to get a fair market value of last year's prices, is what I was told by my brother-in-law who was dealing with this. Yeah, plus one, one point, one point four. It, it's not the fair market value. It's the fair market value plus 40%, right? That's what I understand. Right. Okay. But I don't see who would want to stay there anyways with right. others being built. I think if they had a choice, well, we're not going to take it. Well, you can stay anyways. Where they're, where they're at, it's just going to be crazy. You you wouldn't want to live there anyways. But well, right. That, I mean that. Yeah. I mean, no, thanks. See, and that. See, that's that's the problem. I guess that's kind of the point of this. Given, I, I'm not sure how much leverage these landowners really have. Um, and because again, I, I am sympathetic. I don't claim to be an expert in the whole idea of eminent domain. There are aspects of this that bother me as a conservative, because the, the question is: All right, the, the, these this is on the periphery. So now you're going to be taking private property. You're going to give, be giving them fair market value and a bonus. But is this what eminent domain was really all about? Taking this property in this case against people's will to make room for again this 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 facility that's perhaps a higher use of the land and it's going to be great it's going to bring jobs in and all that but you know shouldn't this be a matter for those people to be able hey if you need our property foxconn you know you should negotiate prices with us that's my issue with regard to whether eminent domain is appropriate here and i know that the lawyers for mount pleasant say yes it is and there's other people who say no it's not but but here's the the bottom line again today's day show is like we're dealing with the real world a lot who wants to live you know, backing up to Foxconn. I mean, that that's just the reality. Foxconn happens whether these, you know, 12 homeowners sell or not. These are small pieces of property. And, I mean, I guess you can say no, and you can, you know, convince, you can fight it in court, and you can say, okay, this isn't going to be an eminent domain thing. You know, we, we want to stay here. But then, I mean, good luck. Good, good luck when you turn around trying to sell your property because who's who's going to want to buy that property if it's backing up to you know the Foxconn plant? So that's why I say this: you might be right uh, legally. They, I don't again; they, they might be right. It's an interesting legal issue, but as a practical matter, what real leverage do they have? Because if they don't take this offer of one point four times fair market value. I would be surprised if they'd be able to get more two or three years down the road, unless you can find that particular buyer who wants to live with trucks going by all the time and 12,000 people going to work on a daily basis. And my guess is not too many people are going to want to do that. It's 154. This is Jeff Wagner. Just saying. It's 157. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We are giving you the opportunity to see that guy you just heard, Captain Kirk himself. This Saturday, the Paps Theater is screening Star Trek The Wrath of Khan with William Shatner. I, I, I hated the first Star Trek movie. It was awful. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan revitalized that franchise. I still remember the movie theater I saw that in, opening night, sitting in the front row because I got there late. Um, just remember that distinctly. Star Trek uh, The Wrath of Khan with William Shatner. You can win tickets right here, right now. I've got a pair of tickets to give away. Caller number 
13. Caller 13 at 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller 13 wins a pair of tickets to see Bill Shatner um, at the Riverside Theater and hear his stories after a screening of Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. When we come back in just a couple minutes. All right, Playboy Bunnies, Porn Stars, is there anybody the President of the United States hasn't slept with, and does it make any difference? And a district attorney in Racine creates controversy with one of her decisions. We'll talk about it all. Stick around. It's 158. Two oh seven, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Male politicians over history chasing females is kind of a dog bites man sort of story. Um, you know, Bill Clinton. Let's go back to the Clinton era and, and Monica Lewinsky, of course, the intern that was there. Um, there were a number of women who came forward and said that Bill Clinton, when he was in public office. Um, was guilty of sexual harassment or sexual assault. It was Paula Jones who said that while Clinton was the governor of Arkansas, she was a state employee. He, she was summoned to her hotel room. Um, he then dropped his pants and PG-13 warning um, wanted her to do something. Um, you had Catherine Willey, Kathleen Willey, who was a former White House volunteer, said that uh, Clinton kissed her and groped her in the Oval Office. You had Juanita Broderick, who was the Arkansas nursing home owner, who alleged that uh, Mr. Clinton forced her to have sex during a meeting on the campaign trail in 1978. These were all examples of allegedly unwanted sexual contact. And, of course, back in the day, because Bill Clinton was the, the great liberal, you had women that just kind of turned the other way and left these women, hang, just hung them out to dry. Oh, no, no, that, that can't be the case. Now, my guess is, and this is just my guess, that there were probably a slew of other women um, that were intimate with Bill Clinton when he was the governor of Arkansas or whatever, um, but it wasn't a situation where it was anything other than consensual. So that, that's sort of the history. Now you have President Trump's past coming back to haunt him. Um, you have, of course, the and, and I use the phrase "porn star." I, I don't, I don't know what makes you a a star. What's her name? Stephanie Clifford goes by the name of Stormy Daniels. Um, she, according to her story. And I think it's so interesting that she wants to go in 60 Minutes and tell her story. Well, okay, she's already told her story. I mean, the story is that in 2006 she was hired to be at a golf tournament where he was then uh, the as the star, quote-unquote, of The Apprentice. Donald Trump was one of the featured guests billing below Ray Romano. What does that say? But that he, you know, he ended up having sex with her one night out there and then that they you know he promised her he tried to get her put on the um, apprentice and that never worked out but i mean her story as she's told it is yeah we we had this one night thing we stayed in contact with each other for a while and then it kind of fizzled out um it was consensual sex he didn't force himself on me it was just it was a one night stand um there is now a, a former playboy bunny who is making the, the same claim. And her story, and she's told her story, the story is essentially the same as the the porno actress, 
that you know she was again at one of these golf tournaments. She met President. She met then Donald Trump, real estate developer, TV star, um, and you know they they had a consensual relationship one night. They had contact afterwards, maybe had dinner or something like that. But you know it, it ended up fizzling. Now in both of those cases, the women allege that they have been paid hush money to not tell their stories, although they've told their stories to you know everyone who wants to listen. And now they're seeking to get out of these agreements that they signed to um, presumably because they figure there's a bigger payday if they can now be free to write their books or whatever. There's also a number of other women who are out there who suggest that rather than the consensual sex that these two say they had with Donald Trump, they were the victim of harassment in various different forms. So you've got this whole thing going on. And. I understand when you see the headlines that say ex-Playboy model or, you know, uh, adult film star, porno film star, it, it gets a lot of attention. But, again, it's not like this has not happened before. It was disappointing, of course, when this stuff came up with President Clinton, disappointing in the extreme, particularly the fact that he decided, I believe, to lie under oath about this. And that in the cases of at least the women I mentioned, this was where he was an elected official and presumably using his authority and using his power in order to, I mean, get these women. In the case of at least the two, this would be Stormy Daniels and the ex-Playboy model. Her name is Karen McDougal. Um, this, This was consensual. At least that's what they say. He says it didn't happen. Right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I have a more basic fundamental question about all this. It is clearly tawdry. I, I mean if Donald Trump was married, had, you know, kids and was cheating on his wife by sleeping with a porn star, or not sleeping, with a woman who made adult movies or an ex Playboy model. That would be tawdry. It would be disappointing. Um, Is it a matter, though, that we should care about? Now, obviously, if there was, I I think, you know, misconduct in office, you know, if this was the president of the United States, I don't know, involved with an intern, say, that's one thing. Should we care about this, though? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this different from the Clinton women, or doesn't it matter? I mean, I, I think, and again, I understand there's some people who just, when we come to talking about President Trump, stick their fingers in their ears and don't want to hear anything bad. But I, I will tell you, my gut reaction, I understand the president denies it, but my my gut reaction is these women say that they, you know, had a consensual had consensual sexual relations with him. I tend to believe the women. I, I just I, I do. I can see Donald Trump. He's at the golf course, you know, it's one of these events. You've got these women who, you know, agree to come up to your hotel room. Yeah, I, do, do I tend to believe their stories? I do. The more fundamental question though is this stuff happens 10 years ago. It's not like he was the president at the time. It's not like it occurred in the Oval Office. Should it make a difference? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. Is this different from Bill Clinton? Because I want to freely acknowledge, you know, back, I was doing a radio show at the time, and 
you know, it was very frustrating to me that you had all these women that were coming forward with allegations that Bill Clinton was using his his office to, uh, again, the power of his office to arrange some of the these trysts. All right. That's, I think, clearly one thing. This is tawdry. It is if it's true. This stuff is nothing to be proud of. But should we care about it? Beyond the fact of its titillated, the value of titillation. Oh, you know, here you had the president, and um, should we care about the fact that President Trump denies this stuff occurred? And I'm not sure too many people believe those denials. I know I don't. All right, we're going to discuss next. It's 2:15. The president, the Playboy model, and the porn star. Should we care? 2:15. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 2:17. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Here's some text. Honestly, I could care less. Who the president has consensual sex with, it's no different than uh, whether I care if my dentist or my accountant, um, ha- who they have consensual sex with. Huh. I was at the dentist this morning, and I just talked to my accountant yesterday. Hmm. <laughs> Didn't even think that. But I understand the point. It's like, does it does it matter? Kelly from Greenfield writes, although it is tasteless, that is Trump, he didn't do it while it's in his office. It's his personal business. It happened years ago. Um, 414-799-1620. Let's see another text. It is wrong by both Clinton and Trump. However, Trump is backed by evangelicals and their high family values. It just seems hypocritical. Well, all right. Let's start with Dan and Racine. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Jay, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Sure. You know, this has been on my 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 list here for a few days now. It's it's they can't get this guy on anything, so that we're going to go and try to get him on twenty years of things that happened in his past when he was a private citizen. For God's sakes, this isn't going to stick to anything. Yeah, it's repre- reprehensible, and the guy's, you know, what he did in his past is his past. But the fact is, it may, they keep bringing this up because it's going to. It's for his next four years. If, if people were to say he's going to run, they're going to try to use this against him. And the more they keep bringing it up, the more most people are going to say, man, this guy's sick. It, you know, it's, it's kind of disgusting. But the fact is, it's happened in the past. Uh, like you said, I mean, Clinton's were a hell of a lot worse than this. Well, it was just different, and at least different than than these are. Okay, I mean, thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. Okay, here's a text. Hypocrite. Hmm. You don't think for one minute that Trump didn't use his power, wealth, fame at the time of those affairs? I say affairs because they were not one-night stands. Quit trying to minimize Trump's behavior. Well, first of all, I, I, okay, uses power, wealth, and fame. All right, that's different than using the power of your elected office. If Stormy Daniels or the ex-Playboy model decides, hey, this is this guy who's on TV and who's really, really rich, and I want to have a one-night stand with him, and I know what I'm getting into. Well, I, I mean, yes, I did, did, did he use the fact that he is rich to help seduce them? Yeah, but last time I checked, that wasn't a crime. Now, look, I think this behavior is appalling, and, and I'm not going to be somebody that's going to countenance this at all. But from the perspective of moving forward, I mean, it, do we care what he did in 2006 when he was, uh, again, uh, a TV star, a millionaire developer? You know, do we care about that? Is the behavior appalling if he did that? Is it disappointing? Yes. Is it fundamentally wrong? Is it immoral, if you want to use that term, right? Is it a betrayal of his wife? Yeah, it's all those different types of things. Does it reflect on his character? Absolutely. Absolutely. But 
Is this a surprise? I mean, is, and does it mean that he – is it going to be something that's going to hurt him? Do we care about this? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Joel in Lake Geneva. Joel, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? I think it's that Donald Trump is an embarrassment to our country. I think that his – forget about the sexual behavior. It's wrong for – Clinton, that's wrong for Donald Trump, too. But he is the leader of our country. And we have 50 million kids that see this on the newspaper or television. And if this is the type of behavior that the leader of a country should have, I'm embarrassed. Uh, I just think it's a terrible thing. Let me let me ask, and I understand what you're saying, Joel. Okay, but let me ask you a question. Moving forward, would you say that any male or female who wants to be president who's had an extramarital affair should then be disqualified um, from being president because it would be embarrassing. No, I do not feel that would be necessary. Okay, why? All right, what is it about? What is it about Trump's conduct then that makes it disqualifying for him, but wouldn't be disqualifying if for for somebody else? Uh, his conduct to me. Just shows a complete lack of the importance of the leadership that we need in this country mm-hmm. for everybody. And no, I don't care if anybody has a personal relationship outside the lines. That's okay. But you, you kind of view this as the whole package. In other words, it's, it's not just the extramarital affair. It's all the other stuff. It's the other stuff. The yeah. the, the lying and the and the. The cheating. I mean, I don't know what how you describe it. There's what? not enough adjectives. Well, no. I mean, th- thanks for call. I mean, it is. I, I will. I will say this. I mean, it's is okay. Gru who's producing the show. Is there anybody who when President Trump through people denies that he slept with these women? All right. Is there anybody that believes that? I mean, I mean, serious. I mean, no. You're shaking your head. No, of, of course not. Because we live in this. It's 2006. Donald Trump is this. I understand he's he's married to his wife at the time, but he's this celebrity playboy. I mean, I, I listen to the story that the porn star says, getting you know, invites her up to the room. I, I, I mean, yeah, I, maybe I'm, maybe again, I'm just being naive, and, and maybe she's just an opportunist. And by the way, I could be naive, and she could be an opportunist, but that doesn't mean that they didn't, you know, sleep together or not sleep together that night. I mean, I, I can just picture this stuff, and he, he continues to deny it. I guess the question is, does it, does it matter? You know, moving forward, is it embarrassing? Like Joel says, it's really, uh, you, yes, it, it is embarrassing. We are talking about the leader of the free world. Um, Otis in Milwaukee. Otis, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I yes, sir. It. You know, the, the biggest thing for me, and while I agree as, as a private citizen, uh, you know, that it's none of our business. You know, the problem I've got is throughout the campaign, not only did he deny these affairs, but he was adamantly. Yeah denying it and even right up to the election he was well he still denies it doesn't he i mean well he's gonna sue everybody he's gonna sue all these girls every single one of them are lying la da 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 so at the end of the day just like um in in a lot of cases you know the lying and trying to get away with it is equal or maybe even more so relevant than the act of itself and it just seems to me that, you know, when it's, you know, literally three, four, five days before the election and he's denying right. and he's just calling these women liars, everything else, 
right. you know what? We got a big credibility problem, and uh, the right. president of the United States is not the one that needs to be lying in front of the nation over and over and over about something like this. So, so you All think you, you think what he, I'm, I'm being half facetious here, but you think he should have when these allegations came out, he should have come out and said, "Of course, I slept with him. Look, she's a Playboy model." <laughs> well, <laughs> like, well, you know, well, you know, <laughs> you know I of course, I slept with him. Yeah, that, you know, I right. take my vows. You probably do yours mm-hmm. uh, with your wife uh, much yeah. more seriously than this. Yes, I, uh, but 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 to me, it's the the honor and the respect and the 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 truth needs to be said from the White House, not nonsense, and that's what we have here. Uh, a guy that can, continues to talk nonsense. Yeah, thanks. I, I wanted to tell you where I kind of wrestle with this because I I think. First of all, and this comes from the perspective of somebody who was highly critical of Bill Clinton. Now, at that time, I mean, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing was you know, something that happened when he was the president of the United States, which I think puts it into a different class entirely. At the same time, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that this isn't an embarrassment. And, and, and it is it is an embarrassment. I want to go back to what one of our previous callers was talking about, about how this is the leader of the free world, and all you're talking about is, okay, what's what's going to be in the news today? Is it going to be, okay, we've got the ex-Playboy model, or we've got the... The, you know, the, the porno movie actress. And again, I appreciate that all these women are opportunists. Look, I, I, I mean, you know, the, the Stormy Daniels, her name is Stephanie Clifford. I mean, she's, she's making a fortune out of this. This is her, you know, 15 minutes. She's traveling around. She's appearing at one of the gentlemen's clubs in Milwaukee in June, you know, and, and otherwise people wouldn't come out to, to see her, but there's going to be people who want to see the woman who says that, you know, she slept with President Trump or didn't sleep with President Trump. So I have, I have no love lost for any of these women. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, and look, I appreciate the fact that the economy's going great guns and all those things, and I, I, I understand, you know, if, if you're asking me the choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I, I, I agree. I think Donald Trump was a superior choice. But at the same time, I don't want to get pushed into this trap as somebody who's argued for years and years that character does matter. I don't think any of us want to get pushed into a trap where all of a sudden character doesn't matter because, you know, it's somebody with an R after their name that's in, in the office. Now, what does this mean moving forward? Well, I don't know. And and should we, should we, how much attention do we give to this? Well, I understand why it's getting attention because of what's going on. But I guess my message is never lose sight of the fact that character does matter. And I don't care how you cut it. This does not reflect well on the character of the president. It, it just it just doesn't. Is it impeachable? No. Um, do you ignore it? Well, I, I I don't know that you can ignore it um, because then keep in mind when the next you know Donald Trump rolls along and it's somebody with a D after their name. You know we we've actually kind of then degraded the dialogue. I think character matters. Is it impeachable? No. But it's certainly nothing to be proud of. Two twenty eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 2.30, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, in fairness, you can't have a conversation about, you know, presidential dalliances without going back to the ultimate liberal icon, John Kennedy, who was, I think it's very clear that um, you know, this this was a guy who was not, not only a, a chaser and not only a serial adulterer, but also somebody who was incredibly Reckless in the type of affairs. Most most notable of the many women he apparently had was this Judith Campbell Exner, who was the Los Angeles socialite, 
who was um, hooked up with uh, Sam Giancana, who was a mobster. And, you know, she's apparently having a relationship with Kennedy at the same time she's got a relationship with this mobster. I mean, just incredibly, incredibly reckless. And, of course, back then it wasn't a secret. The president, the press knew about it, but we didn't have the Internet and, and nobody publicized it. And so, I mean, I mean, today. Nobody speaks ill of President Kennedy because he did it. I'm just saying it's a different time, and I don't think it was anything. I don't think it was anything for Jack Kennedy to be proud of, and it's probably nothing for Donald Trump or Bill Clinton to be proud of either. Two thirty-six, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We mentioned this a little bit ago, and we'll be mentioning it quite a bit over the next two weeks. Rebecca Dallet is the uber lefty Milwaukee County Circuit Judge who wants to be on the state Supreme Court. She's running against Sauk County Judge Mike Skrenick, who is the conservative choice. If you haven't heard this story, uh, Journal Sentinel has a piece about it. Uh, Dallet is in San Francisco begging for money earlier this week. And so she's at this fundraising event um, that's apparently there's a lot of San Francisco, uh, California Democrats that are out this. And here's apparently what she says. San Francisco like this is awesome. The people. I know that your values are our Wisconsin values that we've lost along the way. So, all right, San Francisco, you're where we want to be. You have our values. Well, I, I don't know what San Francisco values might be, but San Francisco is just an absolute train wreck. I understand that maybe Dallas talking about, hey, let's go back to Haight-Asbury in 1967 and peace, love, and dope and all that type of stuff. But I, I don't know that we in Wisconsin want to model ourselves on San Francisco, unless, of course, you know, you are part of the liberal elite um, that, you know, hangs out in, in Madison at the state capitol. Dallet, apparently, she's at this fundraiser. She wasn't just happy enough to say, hey, San Francisco, man, you know, Wisconsin, we, we have your values, except, you know, we've lost our way. She apparently touted getting a shout-out from Rachel Maddow. She talked about the need to reelect Tammy Baldwin. She talked about how Wisconsin has an opportunity to defeat Governor Walker and House Speaker Paul Ryan. Our governor is potentially someone we can unseat. Okay, here's the thing. This wouldn't be an issue if this woman were running for governor. You know, and she's already been on record talking about how she doesn't believe in Act 10. She's appalled by a number of things that the legislature did. If she wanted to run for governor, that's fine. You have these policy debates. She's not running for governor. She's running to be a justice on the state Supreme Court. And I will tell you, it is now apparently she's feeling the heat. She thinks that she needs to This is the year that you run a political campaign and angst over Donald Trump or motivation by the left or whatever will carry somebody who should be in the political realm into an important point position on the state Supreme Court. She's obviously made this calculation. I have to tell you, I'm not sure I've ever seen a judicial campaign like this where people just put aside any pretense of judicial objectivity, put aside any pretense of, hey, I'm going to be a judge and I'm going to follow the law and instead say, vote for me, I will behave like a politician on the state Supreme Court. So if anybody had any doubt about who you should vote for or whether or not you should sit this one out, this should be really, really clear to you. I mean, in Wisconsin, 
do we really have San Francisco values, but we've lost our way? I mean, is do we really want somebody on the state Supreme Court who is running as a politician, espousing ultra-liberal views and saying, I'm going to use my position on the Supreme Court to essentially, and this is how I interpret her remarks, I'm going to use my position on the Supreme Court to craft my interpretation to undo those evil things that those Republicans who control the legislature have. That's, that's really scary. If you're going to start saying, okay, this is the type of person that we want on the Supreme Court, I will tell you these remarks, in my opinion, demonstrate as clearly as possible that Rebecca Dallet is not qualified to be on the state Supreme Court. Now, again, if she wants to run for governor, well, join the crowd. I mean, become the 19th or the 20th candidate or whatever. That's fine. And, and argue why it's important to. She's out there telling these lefties that she wants to unseat gover, uh, governor, someone that we can unseat. She's she's running for the state Supreme Court on a platform of, hey, we can beat Scott Walker. Well, OK, here's the bottom line of all this. You know, if she ends up getting elected. The idea is going to be you're going to have another reliable liberal vote who's not going to follow the law, but rather is going to, I don't know, try to do whatever she can to advance her own policies. This, it is scary. And I don't know about you, but I I don't think that we're really ready for San Francisco values here in the state of Wisconsin. Maybe the state, maybe the state is moving to the left. I don't know. But you'd have to move way, 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 way to the left. And San Francisco values indeed. I think I hear a commercial. I mean, if there's not, there sure should be because this is troubling. You will have a chance if you join me at Insight 2018, a week from tonight at the Country Springs Hotel. You'll have a chance to uh, hear directly from uh, the conservative candidate in this race, uh, Sauk County Judge Mike Skranek. He will be there. And, well, I guarantee you one of the things we're going to ask him about is, is the rule of law and what the role of a court is and whether or not he wants to be a Supreme Court justice or he wants to be a senator or wants to be governor. All right, 241. When we come back, the Racine County District Attorney makes a decision that some people think is controversial. Is it? Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you want to understand how bad this is for Rebecca Dallet, there's this lefty group called One Wisconsin Now. They're funded in part by union money, and they're the folks that are always out there with the hit jobs on Republicans. Right? They're out trying to figure out how to defend Rebecca Dallet and her San Francisco values. You know, that, that's, we, that's what we are in Wisconsin, except we've lost our ways. Well, the head of the One Wisconsin Now, the best he's got is, gee, I wonder if somebody broke the law obtained when they obtained the recording, because California requires everyone in a conversation to agree to be recorded. So that you know you're in trouble when the best you got is, okay, well, she really did say these things, and we understand how bad this is, but maybe when she was speaking at this public fundraiser, she didn't know that she was being recorded. So that might have been against the law. Now, I think that's hooey, but regardless, that's the best you got. Um, any question at all, who should be elected two weeks from yesterday, this should end that. All right. I want to talk about uh, Dante Shannon. Here's the deal. Um, Mid-January, young man named Dante Shannon shot and killed by two Racine police officers. Both were experienced 
officers, each one with more than 15 years' experience. Here, um, here is the story. Three o'clock in the afternoon, Wednesday, January 17th, these two officers received information that this Dante Shannon was armed with a 9-millimeter handgun that belonged to his father and possessed an unknown amount of marijuana. The officer was also told that Shannon would be driving his father's Toyota. About 4 o'clock an hour later, the two officers recognized the Toyota and recognized that it was being driven by Dante Shannon. They saw that the car didn't have a front license plate registration, and they tried to do a traffic stop. Okay, so they've got information. The guy is armed. He's got dope. He's driving his father's car. car doesn't have an appropriate plate. They go to stop him. What happens is they try to stop him. The young man pulls into a driveway in the 500 block of 14th Street and runs. All right? The two police officers start chasing after him and start telling him to stop. According to the report by the State Department of Justice, on not one, but two, not two, but three separate occasions, the man turns and points his gun at the officers. Finally, the officers both open fire. Um, They fire 20 shots, and I, I assume that they've each got like nine millimeter pistols, and that would be the amount of shots that they have. I assume that's what happened. They fire 20 shots after the guy points the gun at them the third time. They hit him five times. All right. The matter was reviewed by the State Department of Justice, and um, at least according to reports, the family was told by the district attorney, her name is Patricia Hansen, um, yesterday that there will not be criminal charges issued. The uh, district attorney essentially says, you know, we have reviewed these reports, you know, and we've determined that in this particular case, the use of deadly force was justifiable, and so there's not going to be any criminal action taken against these two officers. Will there be a civil lawsuit? Well, inevitably, that happens, and so that's potentially true. But the DA saying, nope, no basis to bring criminal charges. Now, predictably, and I guess in a way, understandably, family and friends of this young man who were shot, he was 26, um, are, are unhappy. They don't feel that justice is being done. Um, I don't know the race of the two officers. Uh, the 26-year-old man that was shot was black. I, I don't know whether the officers were white. I guess I've kind of assumed that, but I'm not positive of that. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We've only got a couple minutes, and, and I get I, these, these are always unfortunate situations, and I understand that they don't leave anybody satisfied. But if the facts are, like the investigation found, cops get a tip that you've got a guy who's driving a car, he's ar- he's driving his father's car, he's armed, he's got dope, they see the car, he's in the car, they go to make the traffic stop. Nobody seems to allege the traffic stop was unjustified. The man gets out of the car, carrying the gun, runs from the police, and on not one, not two, but three occasions, points the gun at the police during the pursuit. I, It is impossible to, for me 
to see how that cannot be a justifiable shooting. Now, some people, 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, candidly, under these facts, I think the DA got it exactly right. There is no way in the world, if she had brought charges, that she would have been able, at least in my opinion, to secure a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. If you point a gun at police officers, that that is going to cause the police officers to respond now some people i think perhaps focus on the fact that well they they shot at him 20 times well you know what they did i think is they again had magazines my guess is both of those guns had magazines that between that and the uh and the bullet in the chamber um that's that's how many rounds they fired and so they they fired to try to stop the threat it is an unfortunate situation that somebody ends up dead but that doesn't mean that the police officers violated the law and this kind of comes back to this this basic point that you hear a lot of times. If, if you're going to go around and you're going to be armed and you're going to get into a confrontation with the police, bad things are going to happen. This does not occur, and this man is alive if after the police make the traffic stop, he doesn't get out and run. This man is alive If after they make the traffic stop and he gets out and runs, he doesn't have a gun with him. This man is alive if after he gets out of the car, even if he's got the gun with him, he's probably alive if he doesn't point the gun at the police officers on multiple occasions. But you put all this together, and the reality is you're going to have an unfortunate circumstance. An unfortunate circumstance. And... The, the, you know, the, the problem is it, nobody's satisfied with this. The family is going to be upset, but it's something that the young man brought about himself. And, and that's got to be the message. I understand that some people might argue, well, this just shows that you've got trigger happy cops and things like that. Well, put it from the perspective of the police officer. All right, you're you're trying to make an apprehension. You've made a lawful stop. You're chasing somebody that has a gun and that person then points the gun with you. Do you have to stand around and wait for your partner to be shot? Do you have to stand around and wait for yourself to be shot? I think the answer is is clearly no. This is going to be controversial perhaps in Racine to the extent there is a racial element to this, I'm sure that will be played by some of the usual suspects. But the bottom line is, at least based on what I understand is in the Department of Justice report, that the district attorney made the only decision that I think a reasonable district attorney could have made under these situations. And and maybe the message that goes out is, don't carry guns, don't run from the police, and bad things won't happen. It's 2.53. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa and Greg have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around.